at the end of the day, you don't want to create a nonprofit. And so you want to make a little bit of money. And so just kind of watching where your spend is, again, really good to do if you're starting a new business and also really beneficial when you're looking to sell and maximize value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Whisker Talks, the veterinary marketing podcast from Whisker Cloud. I'm Adam Greenbaum, CEO and founder of Whisker Cloud. Today, I have Wynn Lippincott, the chief growth officer at the Ackerman Group. What's happening? Oh, not a lot. Things are quiet these days in bed, aren't they? Yeah, I wish. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, it has been interesting for us. Like I've seen vet med, and I think it's probably like every other industry. Everyone's on vacation right now. Yep. I think we all need vacation after two years of COVID, so we're all kind of figuring life out. Yep. But I'm so excited to have you on. I've known you for like a year now, and we start every podcast with my favorite question to ask everyone. Everyone knows that I am obsessed with the Incredible Hulk. My new employees who've recently gotten to know me and I showed them my office, they were taken aback by the amount of Hulk things here. Mm -hmm. So I wanna ask you, what is your veterinary origin story? Everyone that works in vet meds is superhero. Yep. Radioactive spider bites your hand, you turn into Spider-Man. The gamma radiation bomb goes off, you turn into the Hulk. How did you find your way to vet med? Uh. I have a crazy tale for getting here. Background is in marketing things, mainly small business marketing. So the do-it-yourself type, not the, I'm going to work for Coca-Cola and help with commercials and big brand stuff. Took a little detour to Wall Street. Felt like I was losing my soul, so I had to leave there. <laughs> and wanted to get back into marketing. And sure enough, came across an opportunity with what at the time was a brand new corporate group that really wanted to help its practices grow revenue, not cut costs. And so I was given free reign to do whatever I wanted to try to drive revenues. And that company was Veterinary Practice Partners, was there for eight years, wore like all of the hats that one could wear, did the marketing. I know way more about practice management systems than most human beings ever should. Really deep into like data and analytics, all trying to figure out how to make practices perform better on the financial side while not completely compromising the lives of the awesome employees that we had. So I spent eight years there and then took a little break, a little break during COVID and found myself now partner at the Ackerman Group. We're a company that helps practice owners try to navigate the increasingly complex practice sale process. A lot of folks do it yourself and sell practices by themselves to the corporate groups. A lot of reason to maybe not do that. And so we tried to assist those that are interested in having a helping hand through that rather challenging process. Man, I love that you said you sold your soul. My story is identical. I mean, I think most people know I owned an advertising agency before Whisker Cloud and I'm a pescatarian, which is fine. I mean, I do it. I mainly did it at first because my doctor was like, hey, man, you eat way too much red meat. You got to stop. So I just cut out all meat. So here I am a pescatarian. The only meat I eat is fish. And my biggest customer was a gigantic bacon company <laughs> and they hired my agency and had record months with national sales and growth. And like, every time I'm reporting to them, I'm like crying. I'm like, Here, here's your report. We sold, <laughs> sold another six figures of bacon and they like own their own slaughterhouse. So anyway, for me, like that was my, I always say like, I sold my soul on that one. Yep. So yeah, I think, I think everyone sells their soul at some point. Yep. I needed to cleanse it off. So it was good to get back into a profession where like everybody's so nice. Everyone is so nice. But like, 
this is going to be an interesting talk because you and I are both like really direct, blunt people, correct? which I think is why we've gotten along so well. And, and it's like, I just had a new head of marketing start at Whisker Cloud mm -hmm. and she actually came to us from Banfield. So okay. she ran digital ads for practices at Banfield and, and I brought her in to help us like take our uh, practice marketing up a notch and like who better than to go steal from Banfield who basically has, as I've seen it. They must have an unlimited budget there. If anyone from Banfield's listening, you can totally correct me on this, but man, you guys run when you're closed and the ads say we're open. You run on holidays. It's 24 seven. Behind headquarters, they have an orchard of money trees, I think. <laughs> it's so unbelievable because when we're in markets running ads against them, it's like, you know, our like first spot impression share, unless we're just bidding, you know, 75% more than we want, we just cannot get ahead of them because I mean, they literally must just say, Hey, it's, we we've estimated it's gotta be a hundred to 200 a day per location wow. per ad set. It has to be because we've even tested it. We've literally had people who said, I want to beat them. I'll go up to a hundred dollars a day. And we've pushed it to a hundred and we're, st we still can't outbid them. So anyway, I could be way wrong. So Banfield, if you're listening to this, these are guesses, but vet med is interesting. And, and like for what you do with the Ackerman group, I think it's really interesting. You guys are veterinary transition partners, but really it's for people that want to sell their practice yep. and they want to do it the right way. And, you know, on your website, which is just beautiful, by the way, it says this year, four out of five practice owners will forgo a broker and sell their business at overly favorable prices and terms to corporate groups. So I asked you before we started recording and I really to our listeners, I say this incredibly respectfully. I also say this as someone who I would say my blind spot in life. I know like Whisker Cloud's EBITDA. I know Whisker Cloud's profit margins, things like that. But man, I don't know. I've got blind spots on a lot of stuff. Does the average pet or the average veterinary practice or business owner do they know what their EBITDA is? Do they know their runway? Do they do they know how much cash they should have? Do they understand like the value of assets at all? I mean, I feel like most practice owners, they know what they take home every year. But the problem I think that many find when they go to sell their practice is that like that's not the number that a buyer bases their valuation on. It's not you know, how much profit do you take home because you're an owner and how much, you know, compensation do you take home because you're a practicing veterinarian? They only really care about the profitability because if they buy your place, they're not going to practice. They're going to have employees that practice. And so usually right off the bat, many owners, not all owners, are at a little bit of a disadvantage in knowing like what is the number of consequence in terms of coming up with the value of the practice. I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges that we observe when we're talking to, to folks who are just like starting to dip their toe in the water of understanding what the market looks like. That's one of the biggest, biggest challenges because like, let's face it, EBITDA is, that's the, the, the technical term. It's an acronym for earnings before interest taxes, uh, amortization and depreciation uh, or depreciation and amortization. It is not like the number that you focus on when you're looking at QuickBooks every month, but it's the number that corporate buyers are just completely focused on because it's it's a representation of what the cash flow is to the owner of the business. 
it's a highly weird accounting technical term, but at the at the at its core, it's how much cash would pass to the owner at the end of the year for the profits. Okay. So I'm gonna ask questions that I think are really valuable to the people listening because I know a lot of our listeners and I'm close friends with a lot of these people and they are practice owners. And and I this is a weird question to ask. So everyone out there, like I totally understand we're all here, me included. My life's pretty stressful. I'm here for the same reason you veterinary practice owners here. It's because my dogs and my cat are my life and and I want to work with people who take care of them. So I get that. We all love the pets. But hey, this is a business which comes up with me and veterinarians all the time. Hey, you know, let us help you with social. Let us help run your ads. Well, we don't really think that ads are important. Like, oh, you're 0.6 miles from a VCA hospital. I promise you. And I always say, go search. Go go on to Google and type vet near me. I promise you, you will see an ad from VCA that says, come get $20 off your first appointment or come get your a free first appointment. And I'm like, and they have a big shiny hospital and a, and a huge budget and they will just free first appointment you to death. And they don't care because they can afford to lose the money. You can't. So if I'm a vet practice owner and, and we work with a lot of startups, I think in the last two years because of COVID, Whisker Cloud brought on over 100 people who were starting up their business. So they came to us for logo, website, SEO, all that fun stuff. I'm like, what would be my plan? If I'm, is the plan like, hey, I, you know, I just got out of school. I'm a 30 year old vet and I, you know, I'm going to do this. Like, is there a, is there an exit plan that they could be thinking of day one? Like, Hey, if I get to X revenue in X amount of time, I could have a nice exit here and live a good life. Or is that just never a thought? Is it not possible? I mean, I think that one of the things that folks should keep in mind when they're thinking about what you just framed is that the things that you would want to focus on, if down the road, when you're looking to sell, you're looking to maximize value you're going to be doing the same exact things to make this business that you're starting today more successful. You're looking to obviously grow the business. You want to see more pets. You want to have more clients. You want to have a really happy team. Staff stability, really important when you go to sell. And at the end of the day, you don't want to create a nonprofit. And so you want to make a little bit of money. And so just kind of watching where your spend is Again, really good to do if you're starting a new business and also really beneficial when you're looking to sell and maximize value. And so thankfully, there's a lot of alignment around the techniques that you would use to make a new business successful and the techniques that would make a practice more valuable when you go to sell it. I think it'd be devilishly difficult if there was not that kind of alignment, but thankfully there is. And so, you know, you hear a lot of folks talk about how practice ownership interest is kind of waning here in the country. Um, younger veterinarians aren't, aren't interested in taking the risk. It is undeniable, though, that it's one of the ways that this profession can generate you know, long-term wealth for their families. You know, it's, it's tough these days with all the debt to make ends meet when it comes to just kind of your production, if you will, your, your compensation for being a, a clinician. But owning a business is one of the ways that whether it's in vet or in any other kind of field across the board, you can create wealth for yourself. And there's no reason why you can't enjoy doing it and not align looking for success as a business owner with looking for that fulfillment that you get 
as a clinician. It's not a zero-sum game. Like You can have a successful business and practice medicine the, the way that you want to. And so it doesn't have to be a trade-off. And I think that there are a lot of folks that are just afraid of that. You know, there's a lot of a lot of animosity towards towards corporate to being kind of a bigger business. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure that there are examples in the past where, you know, maybe things aren't done the way that everybody would want them done. But at the same time, when you own the practice, you get to make the decisions. And so you can kind of craft it the way that you're looking for. And you can find that that fulfillment um, and both help yourself feel fulfillment professionally, but also financially. Well said. And it's so funny because like everything you just said, I've personally met 50 of the people that are doing like the startup thing with us Mm -hmm. and doing the website. And I don't, I could be reading into this, but I don't know if if a single part of what you just said has run through their head. I think it's just like, hey, I don't want to work for someone else anymore. I just want to do my own thing. Man, it's interesting. I can tell you all, and Wynn knows this too. It's like when you run your own business or, you know, you're like one of the, you know, like with you at VPP going in and basically just like running everything and and building out everything yourself. You know, you and I have talked about sort of the systems and processes you put in place. That's like building a company. It is, it is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart at all. You know, I'm, I owned another business before Whisker Cloud and now I have Whisker Cloud and it's like, Man, and especially if you care. And I think that's what's tough too is for the for the veterinarians who are doing these businesses, like we they care, we care, you care. Like we all care so deeply about our business that it's tough to do that and try to understand that I'm running a business, make it profitable, and keep the staff happy, and make sure we're scaling for growth, and make sure that our numbers look good, and also put together a plan for one day when I'm like, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. That is yeah, a lot. It is. So, yeah, I mean, I think everything you just said, everyone out there listening, there's you just heard it from an expert. There's 50 things you have to think about. It's a lot. But what I would say, and I would tell this to everybody that was on my marketing team at VPP, like we would we would acquire a new practice. We'd, we'd form a new partnership with the practice and we would have a checklist of like, I don't know, 100 things that you want to do. Like put these in place. This place is going to grow. Like it, we had it very down to a science of all the practices that the VPP owned, there were two where I just could not figure out the riddle of growth. And so like, there's a lot that you want to do and you know will make things successful. And it's no different if you're a business owner, but Rome wasn't built in a day. You can't implement an entire marketing plan at a practice in a day. You can't figure out your entire path for business ownership in a day. And that's okay. It's okay to have it take time to do it the right way. Like you don't want to rush stuff. Whenever you rush anything, that's when results are like really mediocre. And so it feels super overwhelming to like think about the litany of things that you need to do to be successful. But when you start to just appreciate that it's not a race, it's a marathon, that's when I think that it can be really fulfilling and kind of lower that anxiety level for all of this responsibility that you carry from owning the business. All right. Curveball question time, since you've been like, you've had like such great answers on everything I've asked. What is veterinary medicine going to do when there's no veterinarians to hire anymore, or there's no staff members to hire anymore? Like I worry about that as, as a business owner that serves veterinary hospitals that wants veterinary hospitals to do well. 
it doesn't help Whisker Cloud if you if we're helping you with ads and helping you with social, and then you have to turn those things off because you no longer you know you lost a vet, you're down to one vet, or you're down to two from four, or you're you know you're short on practice manager, or you lost some reception team, or things like that. Like, where is that heading? Because I ask a lot of people not while I'm recording a podcast, and I think it's like more dire than people are willing to say. Like, what what the hell are we gonna do here? I mean, I think that at the end of the day, yes, it is fairly dire. There is way more demand for care than there is supply of clinicians to provide that care. And I personally feel like you see some practices not missing a beat these days on this. And you could look at them and be like, how on God's green earth are you able to serve so many clients? And at the end of the day, and this is like another theme with just the way that I think about the world, like you boil it down to some really, I'm going to say it's simple stuff, but I'm going to asterisk that with there's a big difference between simple and easy, not easy, very simple. There are some workflow things that I see at some practices that you just don't see at all practices that can really move the needle. You talked about Banfield earlier. I, I, I know that there's like a big love-hate relationship with Banfield in the space, and they may not do some things well, but they are pretty savvy on some other, other places. When you walk into a Banfield and you look at that board of all the pets that are scheduled to come in today, I think most clinicians, most practice owners would be like, how are they going to see this many pets? And I have been a big proponent for practices thinking about drop-offs, which Let's think back to COVID times when it was all curbside and you were bringing the pets in. You got to really kind of dictate the schedule in a way that was very different than the traditional appointment book method where like you just have these blocks of time and yeah, maybe one visit takes 10 minutes and another visit takes 50, but like you still gave it 30 minutes. With drop-offs, like if you could start to fill some downtime and just quickly run through some wellness appointments, you see, and again, I'm not a clinician and I have great appreciation for how arduous the task is of seeing a whole high volume of pets, but it's something that you watch at some practices do really well. And then um, the volume that they can churn through when they just tweak a workflow like that and figure out a way to make it work a little bit. And again, you don't need to completely change your business, but just even if you just took two in a day, do you have time to do two across your doctor team? Maybe you do, and maybe you don't. It's worth giving it a try. And so that there are tiny little things that businesses can do. This isn't just veterinary practices. Tiny little things that businesses can do, and all together, all these little things create big change. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not going to fix the staff shortage. But in terms of trying to meet the demand for care, there's little stuff like that. You know, I think that it's interesting that you look across this field and you see some clinicians who thrive working multiple rooms at once, and then you see others that just really want to focus one room at a time. That makes big difference in the number of pets that can be seen. And you know, I think that the folks that see multiple rooms at once wouldn't in any way say that they're sacrificing care. And so it's a lot of personal preference, but it's also a lot of tiny little workflow stuff. And it's so easy. Don't get me wrong. Like I've been a business owner. You've been a business owner. Change is hard. But if you endeavor to, to make changes, don't go big. Don't try to change everything all at once. That never works out well. But tiny little tweaks and just testing stuff out. Again, if I owned a veterinary practice and I decided that I wanted to give, you know, I have a couple cages in the back, they're usually empty. I want to give drop-offs a, a try. 
try it for like one day. Just see if you see how it feels. No one says that if you have to start it today, you have to do it forever, but it's all about testing. And you know this well, like you got to test stuff out. And I think that so many folks are afraid that tests fail on the marketing side of things. And I know I have a, a willing audience in you, like you test a million things and you hope that like two work out well, and those two end up making a big difference. So I'm going to share some like news, some behind the scenes news at Whisker Cloud that I think like really backs up what you just said. And and there's probably a lot of customers that are currently in this process with us right now that is changing dramatically. I'm about to read to everyone. When we implement a website, we use software. We were using uh, HubSpot for this. And, and HubSpot, for those who don't know what it is, it's a CRM, um, which means, you know, it's like how we keep track of our customers, how we know what we do for them. It tracks all of our emails back and forth, phone calls back and forth. We can email them. Um, we do our support through there. We do a lot of stuff. And we were doing practice management through there. And I recently looked at the scale of Whisker Cloud and said, this doesn't work anymore. It's this, we like HubSpot. We like that it's all connected. And, and I'm saying this because I think a lot of uh, hospitals do like 10 things through their practice management system, which it might just not be built to do. So these are the current statuses that a an onboarding website at Whisker Cloud can have. Preparing for onboarding, build initial staging link, send staging link for review, awaiting design feedback, build out final pages, final changes required, awaiting final changes from customer, implement final changes, final QA, do changes that came out of the QA, or it's called QA changes needed, launch approval required from customer, pre-launch changes, ready to launch, and then launched. So I sat down with our web team the other day and I said, so what's up with our websites? And they're like, well, you know, we're, we're trying to stay ahead of the demand, which is really high at Whisker Cloud right now, but you know, there's just a lot. And we just hired a new guy to run our web team, um, Javi, who I feel like everyone knows here, just got a big promotion. So she's doing more of uh, the technology side of things here. And and we just had a really frank talk. I said, is like, does our system not work because vets like don't get us the changes we need back in time? Or, you know, like we can't get a hold of them or they're not exactly sure what they want or they're not exactly sure what shade of blue they want or any of those things. Or is it that we've now given them the ability to be in 15 different stages. Like if I go to my favorite deli down the street and they're like, what do you want? Pastrami, you know, tuna, whatever. I think of five different sandwiches. I could say, okay, cool. Well, I, I know I'm just going to get the tuna and call it a day. But if I have 30 sandwiches up there, does that cause an issue? So like, I, I think, but like what you just said about testing and testing and testing, this is what a company like Whisker Cloud has to do all the time. It's like at any given time, we're building like 130 to 150 sites. Now we've got 25, maybe more developers now. I mean, that's a crazy amount of developers who work on all of them. So it, it works for us. But even that, I'm, I go and I say to them, how do we shave... 10 to 15% off of this stage or this stage or this stage, or is it, do we just get rid of that stage? And I like what you were saying about like, Hey, can you just do drop off appointment appointments for wellness exams and like get a couple more in there? So I think like across the board companies like whisker cloud companies like Ackerman group, and then companies like, you know, vet hospitals or vet businesses, you just have to continually look at the processes and look at what the revenue is off of those processes. And I mean, 
I think Whisker Cloud's been doing a, a much better job of kind of looking at those things internally over the last six months, just to say like, hey, our systems that worked a year ago do not work anymore. And I think it's okay to do that in a vet hospital too. I think pre-COVID, it was like, hey, this is how vet hospitals run. And then COVID comes. And I think, I always feel horrible when I say this, like COVID sucked, but don't when don't you think it was a lot better inside the hospital when you didn't have like a thousand pet parents in there all day? Don't you think that was much better? I mean, I think that once you, we'll just set to the side the anxiety that poor staffs had to go through, like just dealing with the pandemic and interfacing with the public like that. I can't even imagine having to do that. But in terms of like workflow, just general, like the business, irrespective of, you know, the world burning to the ground around us, it feels like you see some pandemic induced changes that some owners are like, oh yeah, I like this. Let's, let's keep rolling with this. Even though, you know, COVID for all intents and purposes, let's hope that it's in the rear view mirror. You're seeing some stuff stick. And like that, I think speaks to, not all change is bad. Change can be tough. Sometimes you're forced into change. A bunch of businesses were forced into change. And look at this. Wow, some of this is actually kind of interesting. Let's let's roll with this. I think that that's what you see in some instances. But like, think about it on the marketing side of things when it comes to change and testing stuff. Like when I when I started at, at Veterinary Practice Partners, it was 2012, and at the time, most veterinary practices had websites that were so completely built for desktop. Like, yeah, some people <laughs> would look at websites on their phones and like we'd have that whole like pinch and zoom thing if it wasn't mobile friendly. And then you started to see some mobile sites that were like really like afterthoughts, like, oh yes, we know that you will look at this on a phone. And so we're going to have like a, just a glorified menu for you. And now things are completely different. And like you guys design mobile first, like desktop is in the past. And I look at hundreds of veterinary practice websites a month because I'm talking to so many owners and I'm trying to get a feel for like what their businesses are like. And you see some folks that have websites that are still kind of like stuck in the past. And if you're not testing stuff out and kind of taking a little risk and rolling the dice to meet you know, a change that could be beneficial either for your team or for your clients, like you get lost in the past. And I certainly wouldn't want to try to market a business that that was not mobile friendly these days. Like think about the up, up <laughs> battle that that would be. But that's all changed in like a decade. Like, and yes, a decade sounds like a long time. It's not a long time. And and you have to just continually try to to test stuff out and know that a bunch of it's not going to work. I absolutely was responsible for some mobile sites of practices at VPP that were just like not that great because we were trying stuff out. And you only get better when you try stuff out and you watch how people interact with it, whether it actually improves life and you keep it or you ditch it and you try something new. And you saw the same stuff with a lot of workflow during COVID where the necessity was to change stuff. And, oh, wow, look, we like it, we like it this way. We're going we're gonna to keep going. You know what? It's like my dog, Baxter, 10-year-old Boston Terrier. My wife took him to the vet the other day. Our vet is awesome, really, really great. And he's laying next to me in a cone, in case anyone's wondering how that visit went. But allergies plus hot ground plus walking on the beach here in Southern California led to some, some issues. But even with them, it's just so great. Like you walk up, you call or text, say, I'm here. They walk outside. They come get the dog. 
I sit in the car, play on my phone. They call me and say, hey, this is what's going on. This is the cost. I say, do it. We're good. And they bring them out and everything's great. And I think for them and for us, this is wonderful. And I think how many more appointments do they get to see a day? Now I'm, I'm cool. Like I know what they're going through. I work with vets. I talk to vets all day, so I'm not going to sit there and bug them and ask a million questions. And to be honest, I'm a lot like Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld, where like, I'm never going to have a conversation with the vet. I'm never going to have a conversation with a bank teller. I'm never going to have a conversation with like someone at the grocery store who's checking us out. Cause I know that there's people behind me who have like a life to live. And I know that that person also just wants to like do their job. So I'm really weird about that stuff. Unless it's like medically relevant. I mean, that made me sound weird. I mean, I'll say, Hey, how are you? But I'm not like, Oh, Hey, do you think LeBron's going to stick with the Lakers this year and do all that? So I think, but for them, it's just gotta be nice to be able to call and say, Adam, this is what's going on with Baxter's pause. We know he's on allergies. He does side point shots. He's on Apoquel. I think, you know, you guys have been walking a lot. You told me you walk at the beach. You know, I think his, you know, I think his feet got a little raw. He's been looking at them. So we're going to, we're going to put him on an antibiotic. I gave him a side point shot. We're going to put him in a cone for five days just so he doesn't lick his paws. And I'm going to bring him out in 10 minutes. And this is the cost. And I'm like, great. He says, you want to charge a card on file? I say, yep. And it's that simple. And I mean, I get the information. Baxter's good. I pay over the phone basically because I put a card on file. That is just so cool. And then that allows the business to, like you said earlier, maybe get two or three more visits a day, which isn't that the point here? Shouldn't like, how does Ackerman Group help three or four more people sell? How does Whisker Cloud get four or five more websites out in a month? Like, shouldn't we all be trying to figure that out every month? So that's like such an interesting like little vignette that you told about your visit. So <laughs> during COVID, our good friends at IDEX, who are just a bunch of data nerds, power to them. Like they they help inform the industry on so many interesting avenues, not just related to laboratory stuff. What they found was that laboratory revenues for practices were growing way faster than the practices themselves. And they're thinking to themselves like, okay, what has changed here? And what they surmised after talking to a bunch of clients and, and looking at data and all of that was exactly what you just recounted in terms of your visit, where in the past, when you're in the practice, many pet owners felt like treatment plans were like a menu where you can say yay or nay, you've got all the time in the world because you're in the exam room. <laughs> and so there was like pushback and there was non-compliance on recommended treatment plans. You know, maybe for this menu, we're going to say yes to the fecal and the heartworm and we're going to say no to the well blood work. But then you're stuck in your car during COVID and you just want your dog back and you want the best for your pet and you want to get back home and you're kind of stuck in this tiny little prison that is your car while you're doing curbside. And the doctor calls and says, this is what I think we should do. And people were like, do it. And you saw the compliance rates for recommended treatment plans. Again, doctors are not changing the way they're practicing medicine. What you're seeing is a change in the acceptance of those plans. Pets are getting better care. They're running diagnostics, like you know, clinicians that want to advocate for that stuff are happy because they're seeing that their plans are being accepted at a higher rate. You're getting more revenue because now all of a sudden you're getting acceptance on the things that you, you have know, always wanted to do when you kind of saw hit or misses with before. And suddenly the businesses are better. The care is better. And why? Because people were stuck in their cars and they were a little bit more impatient than when they were stuck in an exam room. 
it's like the wildest thing, but it's it's one of those things where you kind of look to the past and you see some changes that have been made, you know, in this case out of necessity, and all of a sudden it's kind of changed the way that people have been able to care for pets and help their businesses succeed. It's just like those sorts of stories are just so fascinating to me because you only really fall upon that outcome under certain circumstances. But this is also why if you just test a bazillion things and two stick, like you can actually see some change and being okay with the failure of the other 10 million, you got to be okay with. Yeah. And, I, and it's interesting because I don't really talk about that. Even like when I talk about marketing on this podcast, that a lot of stuff fails, like a lot oh, yeah. does. Yep. And by the way, like this is something interesting that's happening at Whisker Cloud too, to give people another kind of peek behind the curtain. We just rolled out something literally last night. So in the past we've had people, you know, we kind of go back and forth on websites, man, it is hard. It's like, it is hard to build a website because we do it from scratch. We do them custom, whether they're a non-corporate or a corporate or they're, you know, a non-vet business, but in veterinary medicine, it is not easy. And like the thing that I've continued to say to our team is like, I never want to lose our identity of building these like really nice custom sites. But I, I always say like, hey, do we have to start at like the beginning of time or can we at least have like a skeleton that we can mold and we've like we've kind of worked on some of that stuff the other thing we just did and this is really exciting by the time people hear this probably next week you you'll if you're in implementation you'll start seeing this we now have a piece of software that we customize where people will be able to open up their non-live version of their site in real time circle things drop notes, say, click on a picture and say, change this picture. They can even put a link to what they want, change this color. They can type in what color they want. So we're going to roll that out. And again, like this is something that we're doing because, you know, we build a site, they send us a three page word doc. We make all the changes. They look and say, this is awesome. They send us a two page word doc. We're like, holy shit. Okay. This is a lot. Okay. We've made all the changes. Let's go. We get another word doc. We're like, oh my God. Okay. Let's do this. And we said, okay, we can either sit here and do this, or we can understand that like, we're not putting them in the best position to succeed. And this might not be the best way for them to give us feedback. So we built a whole new way for them to give us feedback. And that's what I love. We had a lot of clinics who work with us who had us build out really intricate, like curbside check-in systems where they had to fill out information. They had to put, you know, what color car they were going to be in. They had to put their appointment time and they were really strict about it. And the clinics that were really strict about it did a really great job and really thrived during COVID. I'm picturing one where there was like a, where basically when you got there, there was like two options. One is you text this number and you must say, this is my name. This is the car and color of the car. And these are the pets that are with me and our appointment time is this, or, and it had a link that we'd created. It was like their URL slash here curbside or something. And it literally just asked those same questions and they would fill it out on their mobile device. And I think they had 6,000 people fill that out in the first seven or eight months of doing it. And they got people to do it and buy in. And it was just great. My name is Adam. I'm in a gray Tesla. I have Baxter, the Boston Terrier with me. Our appointments at three o'clock. We are outside. Please come get them. And, and, and everyone thrived and it saves so much time. I mean, can you, I can't think of many things worse than when I go with my two crazy Boston Terriers and there's five other dogs in the waiting room and the phone's ringing off the hook. And they're like, when's your appointment? I'm like two 15. And they're like, great, sit over there. I can't sit there because there's a dog screaming next to it. And I got two dogs. I don't know, man. I just think that like through the use of technology, 
we should continually be looking at how we optimize the experience both for the staff and the you know and the person who's there with their pets but also how to grow the business and i think that you know that's kind of where you and i started and we can kind of take it back to that but it's like again at some point every veterinarian starts a vet hospital and has to be thinking about retirement I mean, you talk to probably as many vets as I do. Are, is a is a thirty eight year old veterinarian thinking about retirement? I mean, not usually. But interesting. But but I'll caveat that with because of how crazy the market has been for folks that have been selling practices. Like last year, valuations were at an all time high. They've come down a bit here in twenty two. A 38-year-old may not be actively thinking like, oh, well, when I'm 62, now is when I'm going to have my plan and I need to talk to a financial advisor at 58. No, they're not doing that, but they are thinking, wow, what's this thing worth? It's like the Zillow effect. Like you may have no intention of selling your house this year, but like, hey, what's the Zestimate look like for this? (laughs) I think that you do see that. And don't get me wrong, like we work with a lot of veterinarians to help them just understand like what what the value of their practice is. And we absolutely get inquiries from folks who are, you know, five, seven years away from even thinking about selling, but they want just like a little market check. And what's interesting too, what's one of the really fascinating things that I've found here now at Ackerman is like, we'll do a valuation analysis and somebody that may not have an intention to sell today But what they're looking to get out of that analysis isn't necessarily like the, your practice is worth X million of dollars. It's more where in my like profit and loss statement, could I be doing a little bit better? It's almost like if you were going to call up a consultant and try to, you know, optimize your financials, there are a lot of folks that recognize the fact that there are like certain levers in your, in your profit and loss statement that affect valuations. And even if they're not ready to do something today, they want to know like how they're doing on those different measures because they got some time to work on that stuff. And so, yeah, we do talk to owners of all ages, all stages of life, all different retirement aspirations, because it's, it's something that like at the end of the day, the business is usually the largest asset that a practice owner has in their personal financial universe. And so it behooves them to understand kind of how's that asset doing and is there anything that I could proactively do to make it a little bit better before I need to go ahead and, and liquidate that and, and have some funds for my retirement and to you know think about the boat that I want to buy or the beach that I want to lay on, all those good things. Um, and so they're just being a little proactive and there's nothing wrong with that. I want to lay on the beach all day. I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I live down the street. Only I just don't have the time. Yeah. So let me ask you this. I get... No joke for the last three or four years, I get at least three to five emails per day asking me to sell whisker cloud to them. Yep. Is it the same for vet hospitals? Are they just getting like hit hard every day? It's, this is another like just fascinating thing that I've observed over my, my career here in vet. So like back in 2012, like half a dozen, maybe a dozen corporate groups that were out there buying practices. And if you owned a practice, you'd get a call from such and such company and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll take that call. The receptionist would let those communications pass through. Today, 
I feel like a job description for every like client care representative at every practice needs to include a bullet point that's basically like gatekeeper to all corporate group communications. <laughs> um, because <laughs> it is amazing how many messages, direct mail, emails, even phone calls that practices get from prospective buyers who just want to have a little time with the owner. And you know, a bunch of those postcards now get put in the trash and the owner has directed everybody to not let those calls through. It's just a completely different experience for the practice owners. I'm even surprised sometimes when there are really, 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 really small practices that I would have guessed would have next to no interest from any of the corporate buyers out there who say, oh yeah, no, like so-and-so stopped by one day and I had lunch with them or yeah, I get those postcards too. Like it's just amazing the outreach that's coming from veterinary practice buyers at this time, just looking for developing that rapport with the owner. Because the hope is that, you know, even if you catch them today and they're not ready to sell, you're a familiar name, you're a familiar face. And down the road, when Dr. So-and-so is thinking about selling, like you might be a call that they make. And so, yeah, the outreach is just immense right now for all owners. Okay. So, I'm going to ask two questions and I think both the answers might not be something we want to discuss on the air. So if I ask either question, you're like, eh, I don't want to go down that road. I think that's okay. I'm ready. What is the, I guess number one is what is the average veterinary practice sell for? It's like an impossible question to answer. I figured because there's GP, there's, you know, there's right. emergency, but I mean, let's say, I, I knew that was going to be a tough question. Because uh, I, will, like, I will say okay. if we were, if we were going to go with a, like a, we'll say a median number. So everybody okay. can go back to their statistics class and realize that that's not the average necessarily. <laughs> um, <laughs> the median number I would say is probably between two and $3 million. That was maybe lower than I had envisioned, but I, I don't think it shocks me. And I don't, again, I don't think that's a bad number. I mean, hey, if you've been running your practice and doing a good job and you're kind of wanting to wind down and you're tired and you can go walk away with two to $3 million um, and you don't live where I live or kind of where you live either, like you could probably live a good life, but it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, I, and I think that the reason for that is it's really the makeup of the industry. Like, there are, you know, estimates for like 30 to 40,000 practices in the country. Well, like 20,000 of those are one doctor practices. And so while you, you're talking at VMX with an old classmate from vet school who has like an eight doctor practice and he sells for bazillion dollars, like those are the numbers everybody remembers. But this is still an industry where there are an immense number of two, two and a half, three doctor practices. And those practices, there are so many of them. I feel like practices of that size are the ones where seeing like a fully optimized profit and loss statement is a little rare. And so there's a lot of upside, but you don't necessarily always get paid for the upside when you go to sell. And so you just have all of these practices of that size. And by and large, you know, based on industry averages for for profit margins and applying kind of market multiples, you end up in that kind of like two to three range. But the spread is super wide, super duper wide. Because yes, if you are lucky enough to own a really large specialty ER practice in an urban area, 
and not many of those are left that aren't already corporate owned, like you will have a very nice check when you go to sell. And so numbers are just looking at all over the board. But I think that the the means are or the medians are really representative of just kind of the distribution of practice size that you see out there. Okay. That was I originally said I had two weird questions. So that was one of three and I feel like we tackled it well. I have two more weird ones now because that opened up another one. So I own a vet practice. We're gonna use some of the examples here. I own a vet practice. I'm not in LA or Miami or Dallas, but I'm in a normal city, you Mm -hmm. know? Okay. And I'm at about 150 K a month in revenue right now. And we'll, we'll leave out like, you know, gross versus net. Anyway, I'm bringing in 150, 200 K month right now. And I really want to sell, but I listen to whisker talks because I'm Wynn's biggest fan. And I listen to him say like the median was two to 3 million. And I'm sitting here thinking like, no, I want to get this to four or 5 million. Like, is there anything that people can do? You know, maybe they meet with you and, and you go to them and you say, Hey, you're not ready today to get kind of what you're looking for. But if you do X, Y, and Z over the next 12 to 18 months, I think we can help you get there. Is there an X, Y, and Z? I know, again, this is another one where it's different. Is it anyway, long story short, is there an X, Y, and Z? Is there things people can be doing now to potentially, you know, increase the value of their business? Yep. So what I would say is that there are there are several kind of really important levers in the value of a practice. There's your revenue, there's your cost of goods sold, i.e. like what you're spending on you know, all the products in your pharmacy, uh, what you're spending on lab, things like that. There is your labor expense. And then there's like everything else, rent and office supplies. Like if you think about like big buckets on a profit and loss statement for any business, but definitely here in vet, like those are the big buckets. And depending on how well you're doing in each of those buckets will will help you understand whether putting in the effort to try to do better is like a worthwhile endeavor. So let's say that on the revenue side of things, all of your doctors work into the bone. You've got no more space in the facility to push through a single extra patient. You're kind of handcuffed. And so holding to try to grow revenue, unless you have like a really good outlet for how you're going to get there, may not be worth the time and effort. Now, if you've got three good leads on some quality associates, all of whom like to do surgery, well, then maybe we hold off and we let them run. So on the revenue side of things, if you've got a clear picture for growth and it's not going to be a really heavy haul, yeah, holding off a little bit, you can create some value. On the cost of goods sold side, you hear, like if you go to enough conferences and you listen to enough consultants, and if you listen to you know, your, your local reps from you know, MWI and, and Covetris and Patterson, and they'll hammer things on like inventory management and purchasing and all of that good stuff. Well, managing your inventory a little bit better won't really amount to a hill of beans when it comes to valuation. Now, if you're paying quote unquote too much and could do better on your costs, well, that can have a big effect. You know, lots of folks will join buying groups where you kind of have the, the benefit of you know, thousands of practices together buying from the same vendors and you get better pricing. Well, you can lower your costs and you can see some better profitability there. And so letting that run for a little bit could be advantageous. But if you're just trying to figure out like, all right, I have, I have 
$50,000 worth of inventory on my shelves and I need to work that down to 30, buyers don't really care. The labor side of things is usually an area of huge consequence. And it's one of the least movable levers, if you will, because it comes down to changing schedules. And changing schedules change how much people make. Really tough change to have in a business. And so unless your numbers are just crazy, crazy, crazy high, trying to sharpen that pencil is usually not worth the effort. Like if you're in the mindset of, hey, I might be ready to sell today, changing your labor expense by, you know, the number of people that you have or how many hours you're giving people, like it may be a bridge too far in terms of the the effort that you want to expend to move that needle because it's really, really difficult stuff and it affects people's lives. And then you have the other everything else category. And yes, if you are, you know, spending like a sailor and treating the staff to fine sushi lunches every single day of the week for an entire year, well, maybe we want to go ahead and stop that for a couple of months and see what the numbers look like. But again, it comes down to kind of what what's the effort that we're realistically going to spend moving the needle on some of those levers. And I think that the realistic part is the thing that people grapple with the most. Everybody is confident that they can make a difference and, and move things. What you will find, though, is that of 100 practice owners that I could talk to today, and we talk about their numbers, and they feel like they can improve things, if 100 of them say, you know what, when I'm going to hold off for 12 months, I'm going to work on this myself, and I'm going to come back to you, 98 of them are going to come back with the exact same numbers. And it's just simply a consequence of, like, everybody's busy and change is hard. And most practice owners are also practicing veterinarians. And so like there's how much time can you spend on making some of these changes and working with your teams to make those changes? Like it's really hard. And so that's why you see some most folks who wait don't see a massive improvement. And I'd say that those two owners that have better numbers, one of them will have made, you know, proactive efforts on their cost structure. And the other one happens to be located in a geography where, you know, homes are sprouting up left and right, and they're just more clients, more pets that you see. And you didn't really put a whole lot of effort into it, but you've captured the growth of your area. And so you're, you're better off there. Change is hard, and it's tough to, to commit to holding and putting in the effort that's required to move the numbers. And again, 12 months is not a long time. <laughs> And so really making a difference is a much taller order than most think. Wow. Okay. So you just gave everyone like an insane amount of solid information, <laughs> which is the point of Whisker Cloud. So I'm going to ask you one last weird question. Ready. This is a tough one to answer. So like, what is your elevator pitch to people that are looking around and seeing corporate consolidators just buying up hospitals like what does the future look like if you're an independent and if you're you know you're in philadelphia and you've got all this stuff going on around you or you're in la and you see some of these you know if you see any of the bond vets or the modern animals showing up in your town what are you gonna do five years from now so i'm gonna i'm not gonna answer with an elevator pitch I am going to provide my perspective on how independent practice owners should view 
corporate competition. How about that? Love it. So there is a natural fear of the 800-pound gorilla. Practices around me are getting bought up left and right. They're going to be taking my clients. They're going to be so much better at recruiting than me. They can offer these huge signing bonuses to veterinarians, and I can't compete. The truth of the matter is, and I'm going to say this from from the knowledge of there are dozens of healthcare verticals in human healthcare that have gone through consolidation already. And so vet is a little bit behind a lot of those. And if you look at those, you can foretell vet's future. Right now, corporate groups, by and large, are focused on two things, buying as many practices as they possibly can afford and keeping the practices that they currently own operating a little bit better than when they bought them. We aren't really at the stage of consolidation where most corporate groups have just insanely awesome magical powers for (laughs) making their practices just like independent practice killers. It's just not reality. I would say that I hear so many practice owners who are terrified of corporates that have an advantage when it comes to recruiting. The truth of the matter is that recruiting at the corporate level today is really just a more thorough effort than some sort of special effort. Like they ensure that the ad that gets posted on AVMA's career bit board doesn't expire and then disappear. They ensure that like if you post something on Indeed, that it doesn't become so stale that a job applicant looks at it and says that it was posted six months ago and they just ignore it because they assume it was filled. There's kind of just like that thoroughness in making sure that the basics are done well. There's no magic bullet that they've got that you don't. At the end of the day, you hear about these gaudy signing bonuses, and the truth is that most of those are paid over a couple of years. Like most businesses in general are not so irrational that they're willing to pay a (laughs) new employee that they've never really had work yet. Just give them like $50,000 on day one and hope for the best. Like there are strings that happens over time. It's a very intimidating headline number, but the reality is that there's a lot of rationality behind that stuff. If I was talking to an independent owner today and I wasn't thinking about selling, I would say like, don't worry. Now, don't get me wrong. There will come a time maybe in like seven, 10 years, where there are probably going to be some corporate groups that are doing some really, really cool stuff that can materially impact you from a competitive position. I don't think that we're there yet. And so don't worry. Just keep focusing on yourself, focus on your team, and things will be okay. Like the sky is not falling yet for the independent owner. They can, they can do plenty good. And the thing that most independent owners forget when they think about corporate you know, competition, there's a local knowledge advantage. And they know their market. They know the clientele of that area better than the corporates do. And yes, while your buddy, Dr. So-and-so sold to corporate group X and is still working there, like Dr. So-and-so already has his check. He or she is already kind of on that glide path towards retirement, probably. Odds are low that they are super duper engaged in feeding local knowledge up to the corporate that's going to create some sort of competitive advantage for them. Like, 
being independent and knowing your market does pay huge dividends. And so don't be afraid. Focus on yourself. There is a very, very bright future for independence right now. Yes, one day in the future, most of veterinary practice medicine of practices that are larger than one doctor will probably be owned by a corporate group of some kind, but we're not there today. And so don't freak out. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and when you're ready to sell, just use help. It doesn't, I don't even care if you don't use Akron Group, just get help. The analogy I like to give is that I would never, ever, ever, and I'm very handy, I would never endeavor to like renovate my kitchen by myself. Like there are people who know magic things that make that all better. I have yet to encounter any veterinarian who in vet school took an entire class on how to sell a practice. This is something you're going to do once in your life. Don't want to get it wrong. While you can do something yourself, doesn't always mean that you should do something yourself. And so please get help. You will be better off because of it. All of the fun, gaudy stats that we have indicate that it's proof that like you just sellers with help do better. And that's not just with us, it's with anybody. Don't do it yourself. You don't want to mess it up. And there's a reason that people specialize in advising on these sorts of things. And that business exists for a reason and you should not fight it. I'm not even going to end it with anything else. He just nailed that perfectly. Everyone in the show notes, there will be a link to the Ackerman Group website where you can do an evaluation of your practice to see what it's worth. I will have links. Everyone else, you know what to do with the podcast. Like, share, subscribe. You'll see when on the Ackerman Group site, when Lippincott. Thank you so much for this, man. Today was perfect. Awesome. Good stuff. This was fun. It is fun. I'm fun to talk to. See? <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>